You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group. American National Insurance, and Spiritless. As the weather turns colder and you're looking for a truly delicious glass of red, I have an idea for you. Chimney Rock. Most everyone knows Napa makes world-class wine, but not everyone knows that within the Napa Valley lies a very small but very special subregion called Stag's Leap District. It's home to Chimney Rock Winery. This winery specializes in Cabernet that is truly delicious. The wine is filled with beautiful layers of complexity and finishes with a velvety texture that Chimney Rock is known for. This is a wonderful option for gift-giving and a perfect option to bring to a special dinner party. Cheers, everyone. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, Visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. If you listen to this podcast, you know I love a great founder story. That's why I love the story of Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. Three young women from Louisville, Kentucky, who had the idea for a healthier bourbon. Healthier in the sense it has no alcohol. So you can have an evening cocktail with no guilt and almost no calories. It is so delicious. I love to squeeze an orange slice, a couple of dashes of bitters, shake it with ice, and then strain it into a beautiful glass and just kick back. If you'd like to try a bottle of Spiritless, you can use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For, the podcast where we meet the world's most innovative and fascinating minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Morgan DeBon. When I reflect on all of the nuances of entrepreneurship, it's really about problem solving, and then being able to articulate a vision in a way that other people can get behind, and then also being able to let go. Morgan Debon is a serial entrepreneur and corporate advisor. She is the founder and CEO of Blavity, the leading digital media company for Black culture and millennials. Morgan has grown the company into a market leader for Black media, reaching over 100 million readers per month through a growing brand portfolio, which includes Blavity News, 2190, Afrotech, Travel Noir, and Shadow and Act. Under DeBond's leadership, Blavity has launched several leading consumer summits, including Summit 21 for Black Women Creators and Afrotech, the largest tech conference for Black innovators and founders. 
Please enjoy my conversation with Morgan Debon. Hi, Morgan. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for agreeing to do To Dine for the podcast. Oh, I'm super excited. I am so excited to hear your journey with Blavity. I'm really, I have so many questions for you, but I want to begin this conversation by talking about food, which is how I start all great conversations. If you had to choose your favorite restaurant, I know it's a tough one. What would it be? You know, um, a restaurant that I've been really missing since the pandemic is Burma Superstar in uh, San Francisco. You know, I, I started my career in tech and when I moved to San Francisco, I just, I had never had Burmese food before. And I was like, whoa, what is this? And I'm just obsessed with pretty much every single dish there. And so for you, it's about the actual food and how absolutely delicious it was and how it surprised you. It totally surprised me. You know, um, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. which is uh, also a pretty internationally diverse city. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't have any Burmese food. And my f- favorite food is sushi. And I thought that like nothing could top sushi and Japanese food for me. And I was like, mm, <laughs> let's try this. Let's and- try Burmese. Yeah, let's try Burmese. And you can't get it anywhere else. Like I live in Nashville now and I'm like totally craving all types of foods that you can't really find here in Tennessee. What brought you to Nashville? So I moved to Nashville during the pandemic um, from LA. I was in LA for like five years and my family lives here. My parents live here. My dad's a professor and doctor at Vanderbilt. And I wanted to be closer to them since I had spent, you know, a whole year not being able to visit them because of the pandemic. And I'm also just, you know, in my early 30s and it's time to buy a house. Yes. It's time to, to start thinking Some about Some adulting. Life. Some adulting yeah, you're doing. Yeah, adulting. <laughs> I dedicated my 20s to Blavity, um, which I'm so <laughs> grateful for. But I also have to at some point decide like, hey, like, are we going to do the family thing? Yes. And uh, yes. yeah, take care of myself a little bit. Well, that's amazing. So you kind of alluded to the fact that your origin story is in tech. When you went to college, what did you want to be? And kind of can you can you talk me through some of your early days of your career? Yeah. When I first went to school, I was registered to pursue healthcare management, really because my dad wanted to be, to be a doctor and I knew that I didn't want to go to school that long. So uh-huh. I was like, let me run the businesses of hospitals. So I like figure that out. Um, I very quickly realized, okay, you got to live for yourself. You know, you yes. can't live for yes. your parents. Amen. You know, but it takes some time to unlearn that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I started off in the business school and then I eventually switched to arts and sciences and to political science major at Washington University in St. Louis. And then that's when I started really spending time in student groups. So I was student body president, really just getting to know my peers and different activities on campus. I was on the board of trustees. Mm-hmm. So school and going to class wasn't exactly my thing. But you like the leadership roles and you really, yes, you were exactly. thriving in sort of political science. You, like you probably could see yourself running for office at some point. At some point, like one of my aspirations at one point definitely was to be the mayor of St. Louis. Uh, <laughs> I felt like I had the right pedigree for it. You know, I went to uh, all girls high school, like my parents are born and bred there. Like, so yeah, that was one of my highest aspirations at the time. Mm. (laughs) Okay. So you get it, you get a job in tech, you somehow get to San Francisco, right? You're working for, was it Intuit? Yeah, that's right. And you're, you're, you're in an apartment in San Francisco. Where were you in your life? What were you thinking? What were some of the seeds of how Blavity got started? 
I love technology. So I knew that I wanted to be a part of a company where the work that I was doing was touching millions and millions of people's lives. And I knew that being a part of Silicon Valley at the time, which was, you know, 10 years ago at this point, we were kind of on the last frontier of being a part of this renaissance of technology companies transitioning to being the biggest companies in the world. They weren't quite there yet, but they were slowly like Facebook, Google, everybody was kind of trending in that direction. And yet I still felt like kind of torn, a bit frustrated, certainly disappointed because Silicon Valley is sold as the most innovative place in the world, that there was no group of people or big companies that were focusing on black audiences and black consumers as their target customers. Mm. And frankly, there wasn't any for women either. And there really still isn't. But that was the frustration or the friction point, I would say, for why I said, okay, Black consumers, black audiences are a subgroup of the population in America, but they drive and we drive a lot of market value. We drive buying decisions. We drive cultural conversations, cultural trends in sports and music and politics. So for a very small population of the American population and demographic, if we can create a brand, a platform, a movement of people coming together, like we were, even if it's small, it will be more influential than a mainstream company. And so that was the, the kind of initial like, okay, Maybe I can take A and B and make Y. Right. And, and was, was your initial idea, to, when you say a company, was it uh, a media company? Was it a website with news, period? Was it, you know, like, what was the initial idea? Because I know it's grown and evolved into something you probably never imagined at the very beginning. Yeah. You know, ironically, I was very reluctant for it to be a media company for the exact reason that's happening now, which is that media industries are very difficult. Media businesses are very difficult because of their advertising based. And I was in a ecosystem that was mostly SaaS driven, right? Working for a company like Intuit. And so I could see the benefits of a SaaS company being a product-based company and not a content media advertising based business. So there's probably old interviews of me being like, we are a tech company and like just really (laughs) resisting the media. You know, that being said, telling stories Mm -hmm. and having the soul of a media company has changed and really built Blavity to be who we are today in terms of like our scale and our reach and the impact that we're able to make. It's because of the connectivity, because of building actual spaces physically and digitally where people can feel seen, where we're the primary audience that we're targeting through our content, through our relationships, through our client partnerships, et cetera. So it's been an interesting journey as a founder navigating both the industry of Silicon Valley, you know, we're venture backed. So I raised money from some of the top VCs and then also reconciling that with media as an industry has a lot of disruption that needs to happen as well. Right. And, and it's almost like we're, you know, you don't want to just argue semantics, really. You're a destination for black millennials, right? And you're creating content that they want to see and you're creating a community where they want to be a part of it. Yeah, that's right. And I, I also consider us kind of a distribution network, right? So behind the scenes, we also run a ad network for we call Blavity Culture Network, BCN, where we are running ads and uh, distribution for other black publishers like the shade room baller alert and other publishers in our network so that we can use our infrastructure our operating system and technology to 
help them monetize, right? Which furthers our mission. So when I was first starting in the journey, it was like, okay, how do we get big fast? So I acquired a few brands, you know, year three, year four of the business so that we could grow faster and quicker. Um, But then at some point it was like, okay, we can't go buy up every black brand to get to scale. (laughs) Morgan, you could, right? World domination. (laughs) People have asked me to do it, but I'm like, you can't pay me enough to try to figure that out. But what we can do is partner and we can figure out what our core competency was, which was technology and is technology. You know, Google's on our board, GV led our series A. One of the reasons I went with them is because we were able to leverage a relationship with Google to build this ad infrastructure um, and build an ad network, which then has given us a huge competitive advantage and scale in the marketplace. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm or your life, you can count on your local American national agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American national companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. As the weather turns colder and you're looking for a truly delicious glass of red, I have an idea for you. Chimney Rock. Most everyone knows Napa makes world-class wine, but not everyone knows that within the Napa Valley lies a very small but very special subregion called Stag's Leap District. It's home to Chimney Rock Winery. This winery specializes in Cabernet that is truly delicious. The wine is filled with beautiful layers of complexity and finishes with a velvety texture that Chimney Rock is known for. This is a wonderful option for gift-giving and a perfect option to bring to a special dinner party. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. You talked about buying up Black companies at the very beginning. What, what, would, what do you think was a decision that you made that was spot on that really led to your success early into gaining momentum? Blavity roots for the underdog. And we tend to really focus on those Black subcultures niches within the niche that actually is really powerful and yet Mm. is somehow underserved. So for Mm. example, um, one of the reasons we were really attracted to Travel Noir, which is a brand that we acquired from a woman named Zim who had an incredible following, Mm -hmm. really engaged audience. And it was the first market, like first mover in terms of this black travel content and storytelling and really highlighting black influencers and black people across the world in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. And we were like, okay, 
this should be a website. We should have video. We should be thinking about podcasts. We should be building up this entire travel vertical. That's a, you have to kind of be in the know on Instagram to know that this is a tr- sub trend that's happening. You know, anyone right now could go on to uh, Instagram or TikTok and look at the travel noir hashtag and you'd be like, who are all these black people like living their lives in Prague, <laughs> you know, um, or Madrid or Costa right. Rica. Right. And so to me, about finding those highly engaged sub communities and then super serving them with content information and also experiences now that we've we've really built out our events business as well. Can we, let's talk a little bit about raising money because I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on that. Right. So um, I, I hope I'm doing at least some of this justice. You are one of a few African-American female founders to have raised more than a million dollars in venture capital. In fact, you raised 12 million to start in Globe Blavity. Can you talk me through your process and what you think is your superpower in that arena? Well, the good news is that it's much easier to raise a million dollars today than it ever has been as a black woman. The bad news is that it's still disproportionately, like egregiously low, you know, relationally. I think that I was successful for a few reasons. Certainly it was not trendy at the time to invest in Black people in the same way that it is trendy now. But I was one of very few, which I think gave me a lot of attention early on because it was difficult to say no to meetings when you just don't see a Black woman get pitch you mm-hmm. often, mm-hmm. unfortunately. You know, I remember being in rooms and you know, you go to the founder meetups in San Francisco, they're everywhere, right? Like every, you could throw a rock and hit a happy hour for founders. <laughs> and I would be in those rooms and, you know, they would, people would say like, I've never been pitched by a black woman before. And I'm like, that's oh, nuts. That right. But it was, but it was stunning. true. Yeah. You know, I'm like, is that a you problem or is that a us problem? Right. And it, right. And so oh. it's a lot, there's a lot of people who are working on making this so that no one can ever say that statement. Yes. Um, but at the time, I think that because I made the decision to go the route of venture, which I was very reluctant to do, I bootstrapped Blavity for a year. We just got too big where I couldn't afford to keep bootstrapping it if we were going to grow at that pace. Sure. Getting expensive. How are you going to acquire companies if you don't have the funding? Yeah. Right. You need to have venture or some sort of financing. So I think I was successful because it was the right time. I was one of very few. I was definitely very cocky. I had a chip on my shoulder. I very much embodied good or bad, the kind of traditional male energy of fundraising where you have mm-hmm. to kind of alpha yourself up. Yeah. Um, it presents other problems down the yes. line as a, yes. as a woman founder, some things that I had to unlearn, but it was a survival technique, but I think it worked, right? So when people said, oh, you know, Morgan, she's, you know, Morgan's a shark. She's fierce, mm-hmm. right? And so I think I was able to pattern match enough that I was able to get the money. And oh, that's fascinating, Morgan. Just I'm gonna I'm sorry to cut you off, but you just said sure. something super fascinating. And you're, and I thank you for your transparency because you were saying you were pattern matching, knowing knowing that that world that you were going into, what you knew the rules, you knew what you had to do, and. To tell me if you think this is accurate, that when men go up for money, they really shoot for the moon and they explain a scenario that may not be attainable, but that sounds magical and mystical, right? And so the men in the room are like, we want that. Whereas when women, and this is generalizing, obviously, women go in the room, they say the reality of this is what I think I can do. And and they really tamp it down. And the men are like, oh, that doesn't sound that magical or mystical. So maybe not. And it sounds like what what you did was you knew the game and you really came in and, and put on a show. Yep. 
And I had to, you have to really believe in yourself to do that. You know, you have to really psych yourself up to say, <laughs> yeah, we could be worth a hundred million dollars off this whiteboard <laughs> that I have in my living room, you know, like, sure. In five to seven years, no problem. You know, um, yeah. I can do that. Yeah. I can hire hundreds of people. Yeah. You have to embody the dream. You have to embody yeah. the dream. It sounds what I'm hearing from you is that you absolutely, you know, hook, line and sinker embody that dream. Yeah. But honestly, yeah. that's not like actually a good personality type to have for a long period of time. So I think that's <laughs> where, you know, some founders never get out of that kind yeah. of superhero energy and it can be difficult and toxic within the workplace. Too, right. 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 Of course. So, We've seen that time delusional, and time again. if you will, <laughs> delusional. And I'm so grateful. You know, Blavity relocated from San Francisco to LA. One of the reasons we moved to LA and moved our company there was so that we had a more diverse set of thought. We had a more diverse employee base, so that we are not just kind of reinforcing some of the challenges with being in the Bay Area. And, you know, the Bay has changed since the pandemic, so I'm sure mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the same. But at the time, the culture is tough in San Francisco mm-hmm. and Silicon Valley in general. When you got the when you got the uh, twelve million or so and change, and you're starting Blavity, what are some of the pain points? What what at the very beginning in those first? Well, you mentioned that you bootstrapped it for the first year, but the first two, three, four years, what are your biggest pain points? Well, when you raise that kind of venture funding, you know you form a board, um, and then you're held to a certain set of fast growth, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, we grew 100 percent last year wow. during a pandemic. That's amazing. And so, what you're doing is you're really asking your teams and your employees to defy the odds year yeah. over year over year. Yes. And there's no amount of growth that's ever enough. Now that right. we grew 100 percent, of course, everyone's looking like, "Great, are we going to do it again?" Well, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that again. No, can I just do 50% this year, right? Right. It's never enough when you take venture funding. And I think that that is a life that you're signing up for sometimes as a first-time founder where Mm. you're not necessarily knowing you're signing up for that life and you're signing up your early employees for this and everyone who joins your company. And it's not sustainable in certain industries. And so we had to take ourselves off the hamster wheel. I haven't raised venture funding since 2018 and really then transitioned the business from a venture model to a profitable media company. Mm -hmm. And that was not an easy transition because you go from spending, spending, spending to actually I care about the budget right today. <laughs> Actually, we got to get money coming in. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a big transition. It was a big cultural transition. It requires different checks and balances within the organization. We had to grow up much, much faster than other companies would have with, you know, I've hired external, like external COO. I've hired people to be controllers and just, we just grew up much faster than I would have expected us to have had to, but it was really, really actually a privilege and such a, something I'm very grateful for because when the pandemic hit, we were prepared because we had been preparing to be more financially sound. If we had been burning 200, 300, $400,000 a month, Mm -hmm. then we would have gone under because we weren't ready. Right. But we were already on track to do well. How did you come up with Blavity as a name? Oh, such a good question. Blavity stands for Black Gravity. It's a word that we were using in undergrad at Washington University where it was a phenomenon that we used to describe all the Black people coming together. So we would sit down at the lunch table and one Black person would sit down, then two Black people would sit down. All of a sudden, there's like 25 people crammed on two, three tables that we've 
popped together and it's like where did you guys even come from was that like a black signal that went out in like the sphere <laughs> and that's what we used uh that phenomenon of black folks coming together and finding each other to be in community was blavity yeah well i went to notre dame and you know the white kids would always say why, why do all the black kids sit together and it's like well why do all the white kids sit together right <laughs> right i mean you know it, it and it which is at the very heart of of blavity right and why you created the community absolutely where do you see yourself in three to five years or what is your big vision you know not to get back into that venture capital room i don't mean to do that and, and i don't mean to put you on the spot but i'm just wondering like where you want to take this company you know, it's a tough question, Kate, because it's hard to know how the world is going to change. The world's moving so fast. Yes. With Web3 and TikTok and Facebook changing to Meta and then also changing their algorithms to reduce publisher distribution in favor of creator distribution, you know, it's uh, it's hard to predict. So what Blavity Inc. and what our leadership team, what we're focusing on is building our brands even stronger than they've ever been and making sure that we're everywhere our audience is. So mm -hmm. expanding into podcasts, expanding into OTT, we just launched Blavity TV. You can download it on your Roku, building up our intellectual property so that regardless of what the social networks platforms decide to do or whoever wins, we're going to be there. We're going to have our good content shows. And now continuing to invest in black creators, but we're building partnerships and relationships with certain creators so that they can be a part of our ecosystem. We can support them similar to what we do with our publishers, but from a creator's point of view. When you think about the time that you spent in those you know, rooms trying to raise money to where you are now and how successful Blavity has become, what have you personally learned and how have you changed as a person through this journey? You know, what I've learned is while it's important for you to get access to information and access to financing. I think it's important as a woman and as a person of color and as a black person to never be dependent on because it changes the power dynamic when you feel confident that you're able to get it done without them. Mm -hmm. And that it also helps your mental to not ever be dependent on them. You know, mm. if, if your world ever revolves on someone else and some other large group of powerful people giving yes. you permission or access um, and your success of the people you care about, the audience you care about, the employees you care about is dependent on them, yes. then it can cause a lot of challenges. And so I learned that very quickly that we needed to, as a company, be self-sufficient. I say this to my team all the time. We have to be self-sufficient, okay? Mm -hmm. This money that you're making, that you're closing is going right back to you. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. you know, we're not that big where it's actually in our control. And I think that I'm very grateful that I've been able to navigate that. Uh, the ups and downs and lefts and rights of entrepreneurship so that we are able to still be in some level of control of our destiny. Yeah, you're creating your own power, right? What you're saying is, of course, when you're first starting out, you know, you you're need, you need help wherever that's coming from, whether it's venture capital mm -hmm. or fam family and friends. But to be in a situation where you can control your own power, your own destiny, and then you have complete control of the content and what you're saying to the world, right? Yes, absolutely. Editorial control for sure is really important. We've been, there's other media companies that no longer exist because they were too dependent on venture funding. 
Yes. Now, um, you were talking about that those first few years of getting a company off the ground and sort of you don't quite know what you're signing up for, especially when you take VC funding. I'm just wondering, how are you doing and how have you been able to stay sane, to me- be mentally healthy? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's almost like we this self-care is such a hashtag this year. Yes. But at the end of the day, to really get something launched, you've got to give it everything you have. So how, how have you found that balance? Well, I have two great co-founders um, that I went to college with, Jeff and Aaron. So we've known each other since I was 17 years old. And so I think having a really good support system and going on this journey with other people has been really Mm -hmm. helpful. And there's certainly been three, six month periods of time where I'm like, you know what? I'm not feeling it. Mm. Right. And they've been able to step up. Yeah. Waves. Yeah. It ebbs and flows. There's certain times when they've been like, I'm going through a tough period of time right now and I need support. You know, we have life goes on. People have gotten married. People have had babies. People have had deaths in their families. And so having a support group, a friendship, a business partnership with co-founders that I trust like brothers, Mm. you know, I don't always like them, but I trust them (laughs) just like a brother, you know, and we have very difficult conversations, but that intimacy of a business relationship of starting and co-founding a business and an empire and a community and going on this mission and journey together is one of the reasons that I'm still able to get up every day mm-hmm. and fight this, the good fight, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. of trying to make a difference. And so I, you know, I just, that's really, I think the biggest thing. Have you ever had days where you're like, I'm done, I'm out? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm out I'm done um definitely absolutely yeah. I, it's I hard. Would, if any founder says no I would be like come well, on right yeah it's difficult yeah. it's very challenging because at the end of the day it's your responsibility and just like you're saying even if things are if things are bad you still made those choices right. if things are good you still made those choices right you know if your employees are unhappy there's no one else to blame, you know, and it still may be the reality. You still may, you still may have made the exact same choices as a founder and as an entrepreneur to make a decision that still makes some set of people unhappy. Is there something you realized uh, that you're good at that you didn't know you were good at through this? Because you've had to do so many things, whether it's hiring or obviously you're good at raising money and, and you know, you didn't know you were good at that and you turned out to be amazing. So I'm just wondering like, when you look back and you're like, wow, here is what I really think I'm not only equipped to do, but have the skill to do. I think that I am good at being ambitious, cautiously ambitious. And I see things that people don't see that seem obvious to me, Mm. but are complex problems and solutions. Ooh, that's good. I think that I didn't know that that was like a strength of mine, Mm -hmm. but having now gone through the pandemic and gone through like switching like our conferences business from a real life business to a metaverse, we built a metaverse experience two years ago, pre, you know, everyone knowing even what a metaverse was, right? right. (laughs) And it was still a profitable event conference, which is crazy, Mm. right? And so like thinking through those types of problems very quickly, I think is one of my strengths. And when I reflect on all of the nuances of entrepreneurship, it's really about problem solving and then being able to articulate a vision in a way that other people can get behind and 
then also being able to let go. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that what I've learned and become better at is setting the goal and then like letting other people figure out how they want to get there. Mm. Is there any decent Burmese food in Nashville? No, (laughs) there's not. But if somebody wants to start a Burmese restaurant here, I will be your first angel investor. Oh my goodness. You said, you you know, you just put that out in the universe. People are going to listen to this, Morgan. Oh, well, I wish we were dining um, at your favorite Burmese restaurant in San Francisco, but it is such a pleasure to talk to you this morning and share a little bit of your journey. Much, much luck to you and continued success in 2022. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at to dine for TV and Facebook at to dine for with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Spiritless, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. 